Hi and welcome to Data Hack Radio. This is Kunal, your host for this podcast. First of all, a big thank you for all the support and feedback you have provided on Data Hack Radio. We have released 5 episodes till date and they've been listened by thousands of people. Also, if you have any request or suggestion for a guest on the show, do reach out to us on podcast at the rate analyticswithya.com. In this episode, we will talk to Emily Glassberg Sands. Emily is the head of data science at Coursera. She is an economist by education and has published some interesting studies during her PhD at Harvard. She has been with Coursera since March 2014 and has seen Coursera grow through its hyper growth period. Emily has been featured twice in our list of top women data scientists across the globe. In this discussion, we will talk to Emily about her journey and the problems her team is working on. What I really like about this discussion is the focus Emily brings in the in understanding the underlying customer insights and how she describes them in our discussion. Just to introduce myself, so Emily, I'm Kunal. I uh, started Analytics with Dia back in 2013. At that time, it was more of a personal blog. And over the last four years, we have you know converted this personal blog into a community portal. And the idea is to create a, a portal where uh, any analytics or data science professional can find their end-to-end career needs or knowledge needs addressed. and as part of that one of the things which we do is talk to various industry leaders and release those discussions in form of podcast so that the community members can learn from these uh, thought leaders and and see what is happening in the domain so that's that's the background about the podcast got it it's fantastic and important work and you know i mean data sciences or analytics is a really big and broad space and it's evolving very quickly and so you're clearly providing a tremendous amount of value to the community so so thank you for doing that thanks emily for uh, taking time out for this interview I'm really excited to have you on the podcast and as i said uh, i'm sure our community members would learn a lot from your experience the kind of work you are doing So uh can you tell us a bit about yourself your background how did you get into data science Absolutely so I joined Coursera about four and a half years ago <laughs> I am actually an economist by training and so I had just finished my PhD in economics at Harvard Um, and I joined Coursera largely for the mission. I actually did not apply to be a data scientist. Uh, I applied for the only role that was open, which was to be in partnerships, uh, selling, uh, convincing university and industries to put their content on Coursera. Mm-hmm. And during the onsite, uh, I was handed off to some of the machine learning folks from Andrew and Daphne's lab. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time I was interviewing, there were about thirty people at Coursera, and uh, more than half of them had been doing machine learning at Stanford. Wow. And so, although my economics background was somewhat different, um, the team and I really jived around quantitative methods for understanding who are our users, how well are we meeting their needs with our current product and platform, and how mm-hmm. can we evolve um, the platform and content over time. to better meet their needs. So, I came in as um the first data science hire. Um there were some fantastic people at the organization working really hard uh to build out the data infrastructure and tooling uh which sort of set me up for success despite the 
despite the small size and early stage of the company. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been a tremendous ride over the last four and a half years. Yeah, I'm sure. And uh, uh, Evan, uh, in this four, four and a half years, how much has the team grown? How much has uh, Coursera grown? So, so how much has your data grown uh, in terms of its velocity now? So quite a bit. Um, So we've had very rapid um, user growth, also growth on the content side. So Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say from when I joined to today, we've probably 30x the number of registered users and uh, more than 30x the volume of content that we have on the platform. Mm -hmm. Our team has grown to almost 300 people uh, across the organization. About half of those are on product and engineering, so focused Mm -hmm. on building out the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and 15 are on my team. So the data science team at Coursera is actually an end-to-end data team. We span three functions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have data engineers, I have decision scientists, and I have data scientists focused on data products. Um, yeah, so happy to talk about each of those or, or uh, any of them in particular. Sure. Uh, before we get into that, uh, just wanted to know, so when you uh, came into Coursera, did you know ba- uh, coding at that time and were you exposed to, say, R or some of the languages which we use or you, you learned it on the job? So my research in graduate school had been done almost exclusively in MATLAB and in Stata. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I self-trained uh, actually in a book uh, at the time. This was, you know, there were online courses, uh, but they mm-hmm. weren't of the quality that they are today. So I self-trained sure. in SQL, uh, R, and a little bit of Python um, mm-hmm. before joining. And then I learned a lot on the job uh, and from my peers. And mm-hmm. today the team works um, in a combination of R and Python. Uh, everybody's comfortable in both, sufficiently comfortable at least to do code reviews of teammates, mm-hmm. uh, but we still support both languages. Interesting. And uh, as part of your research, you also co-authored uh, two, uh, two research papers. Uh, one of them was about mo- uh, relationship between uh, the weather outside and the people going for movies. And, and there was another one about uh, uh, referred workers, the chances of them uh, getting hired being higher can you can you uh, tell a bit more about them and they they almost sound like data science projects to me yeah so you know i um one of the research papers that you're referencing which is on referrals and mm-hmm. in particular the question is um, why are referrals valued in the labor market? Mm-hmm. And in particular, are referrals, that is people who are referred to companies by current employees at that company, uh, more productive uh, and or do they persist longer at the firm than people who are not referred? Uh, alternatively, uh, it's possible that referrals are just reflecting nepotism versus a productivity or um, retention differential. And so the core question of the research is, why are companies um, focusing so hard on hiring referrals? And mm-hmm. is there productivity or retention differences? Or is the, uh, is the mechanism nepotism or desire just to have people like the people you already have? And so it was like a data science role. I actually... Um, ran experiments on 
Odesk, uh, mm -hmm. which has since merged with Elance and become Upwork. Uh, yeah. But I believe it's the largest uh, online platform for freelancers. And I created uh, 50 firms in Boston, mm -hmm. and I got a bunch of funding from Harvard and others. And I hired people um, into those firms mm -hmm. and randomized them into a range of different treatments. So wow. in particular, I asked people I hired after they'd worked for me for some period period of time to refer mm -hmm. folks. Mm -hmm. And um, I compared those folks to the folks who applied organically to the exact same job posting, mm -hmm. randomizing into whether or not you were working with the referrer, whether or not it was teamwork versus individual production, whether or not you were being monitored by someone you knew. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, what I found is that, you know, the people who were referred are were just inherently more positively selected, which is to say, no matter their work environment, and even when they were hired to a firm to which they did not know they were referred mm -hmm. um, and were not working with the person who referred them, they performed better and lasted longer at the company. Mm -hmm. And some of this you could have observed from their resumes, mm -hmm. but a bunch of the effect was actually through unobservables. So that is to say... Uh, referred workers are more productive in part because they are more positively selected, even mm -hmm. above and beyond what an individual could, an employer could glean from the resume. Um, and then you get an additional boost when it comes to team production. So mm -hmm. when a referred worker is working with the person who referred them, they work harder and they work longer hours. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had a treatment around monitoring, which is uh, trying to understand whether referred workers work harder when they're uh, refer is receiving feedback on them. And the answer is, at least in my study, people really don't like to be monitored. Uh, <laughs> and so monitoring actually, um, you know, pushed back on some of the positive effects of refers because people who were monitored did not stay at the firm as long. Wow, very interesting study. And and uh, out of these 50 firms which you created, so how many data points were you able to generate and uh, how long did the study take place? Yeah, so the um, I invited over 10,000 workers to apply to my jobs. And so mm -hmm. if you think about the sample of different applicants, um, mm -hmm. you know, that would be the sample size. In many of the questions I was asking were only uh, identifiable on the set of people who actually worked for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was in the few hundreds. And this was an interesting case, actually very different than uh, the study that I did with Duncan Gilchrist on movies, where it was a small data problem. And so mm -hmm. how can you get clean identification on small data? Mm -hmm. And the answer is very careful and thoughtful randomization, um, ensuring that we don't have more arms than we need to identify core questions. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, in the movie paper, which was totally different world, non-experimental data, you can't randomize the weather, you can't randomize people into going to a movie or not. Mm -hmm. um, the core question we were trying to answer there is, you know, do people care about the behavior of their peers in and of itself? And mm -hmm. in particular, do they value a good or service more the more other people have engaged with it. And so out in the world, you see a lot of herd behavior. You see people going to the same shows as their friends. You see people um, you know, attending the most popular restaurants. Um, there are sort of two arguments for why this would be the, be the case. The most commonly focused on in the literature is social proof. So if you and I go to the same restaurant, we go to the same restaurant because it's inherently good or because I infer that it's good 
on account of the number of other people that have, that have gone there or they have told me that it's good. So mm-hmm. um, social learning um, or observational learning. Mm-hmm. And Duncan and I were curious whether there was another phenomenon wherein it's more of Gary Becker, the famous Chicago economist version of network effects, where the good is just inherently more valuable the more others use it. And I think there are obvious network effects in society. You know, the iPhone has a network effect because the more other people are using it, the more valuable it is to me. Back in the day, the telephone had a network effect. But are there actually network effects in just our consumption of goods? Do I like a movie more the more of my friends have seen it because I have a shared experience with them and something to talk about and reflect on and it makes me feel closer to them. And so there we were actually identifying off of random variation in weather the weekend a movie opens. And so if a movie happens to open, you know, even controlling for the weekend it opens on a rainier day, more people go in the first weekend. And there's this fascinating phenomenon where you can then trace out subsequent weekend momentum. So mm-hmm. the more people go on the first weekend, the more people go in subsequent weekends. And you can see that that momentum exists both for high quality and low quality movies. Um, and so that is evidence of this sort of network effect or preference for shared experience. And um, so in that paper, we were digging in on uh, the mechanisms and drivers and it, you know, it's very much at the local level. So people really want to do things that people around them are doing. Um, mm-hmm. If more people are going to the movie in New York, that doesn't make more people go in LA the next weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been uh, uh, a really fun, a really fun paper. And, and Duncan and I, um, you know, there we're really dealing with a big data problem, very, very different than the small data problem in the experiment. Right. And the big data problem is that there are literally infinite ways that you can instrument for weather, right? So this is an instrumental variables approach. We're instrumenting um, for movie going with weather on opening weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there we had to blend sort of our econometrics with some light machine learning. So basically lasso in order to select optimal instruments. And I think there's a really cool field, you know, Susan Athey and Hito Imbens of Stanford are at the forefront of this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Chernozukov and Hansen are, are another set uh, working closely here, really blending machine learning with econometrics and causal mm-hmm. inference and helping us better understand cause and effect and mechanisms in a big data environment. So, um, you know, it's true now in retrospect that I was doing some data science in graduate school. I didn't know it. (laughs) Okay. In fact, I was about to ask, so how many of these techniques were you, you know, able to apply once you were at Coursera? Because, you know, I can see some of these getting applied and uh, for finding out insights, especially given that you, uh, you know, Coursera was in very early days. So both the small data problem as well as the big data problems would have found their applications. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the experimental design component and analysis component from, um, you know, from economics and statistics is uh, super relevant and I use it on the job. My, my first, so when I joined Coursera, the first thing I wanted to do was figure out how we could increase the value of the credential. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I don't know if you were on Coursera in 2014, uh, 2014 but at the well, time... I was our- one of the early users, you can... <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So, so our product, um, our paid product was the certificate and everything else was free. So all the videos and assignments and so on. And so, you know, in trying to explore how we can grow the value of the certificate or the credential, Mm -hmm. I first looked at the observational data to see who was 
buying the credential. And my working hypothesis going in before looking at the data was that people in some markets, in particular markets um, with uh, less good relevant alternatives, might be more likely to buy the certificate. So for example, I thought um, people in developing markets might value the certificate um, you know, because they could take it to their job interviews in a printed version as part of their portfolio, um, and it would be a nice complement to um, the rest of their educational background. And what I saw in the observational data was actually that people in developing markets were were not consuming the certificate, and so I wanted to know uh, why. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I discovered using actually many of these econometric techniques, and in particular, um, I was using a regression analysis with a fixed effects model and identifying off of natural variation over time in price, was that learners in developing markets were much more price sensitive than learners in developed markets, which is mm -hmm. intuitive, but we just hadn't thought of at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and that it might be really valuable to have different prices. So to geo price and have lower prices in markets where mm, purchasing power parity uh, was lower, right? So where the same amount of money buys a larger bundle of goods, uh, we should charge uh, lower prices for our certificates. But we didn't want to A-B test pricing. We didn't want to randomize people into different yes. prices. It didn't feel fair. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't want two people in the same community talking to each other and realizing they had different prices, especially when you're talking about something like education. Yeah. I think fairness and equity is, is really important. Mm -hmm. And so what we did instead is a quasi-experimental design where I was actually randomizing um, within markets. So mm -hmm. I took a bundle of developing markets. I uh, used a, what's called synthetic control methods. So basically... Mm -hmm. Um, for some methods, they uh, so for, excuse me. For some countries, mm -hmm. perform very similarly to a weighted bundle of other countries. Mm -hmm. And I did what's called a difference in difference analysis. So at a given moment in time, in a select number of countries, I lowered the price, mm -hmm. and I observed how um, that country reacted relative to the weighted bundle of other similar looking countries following mm -hmm. parallel trends in the post period versus the pre period. And that's called the difference in difference analysis and econometrics. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I think um, is just one example of the ways in which econometric techniques can be really valuable in data science. And um, Duncan Gilchrist and I have written all, a whole series of posts on causal inference in tech and basically taking the different methods from econometrics and applying them um, with case studies to tech environments. Some of those case studies are at Coursera, um, mm -hmm. some are at Wealthfront, uh, where he used to work, some are at Uber, where he's working now, and some are based on conversations with friends of ours uh, who are now in industry. So everything from controlled regression to fixed effects to regression discontinuity um, to difference in differences, instrumental variables, and then our new series is blending those causal inference methods with mm -hmm. machine Interesting, interesting. Are you ready for the AI revolution? In my discussions with several business leaders, I saw they did not know how to prepare their businesses for the changes coming because of AI. Analytics Vidya's AI for Business Leader course is thoughtfully curated course delivered by experienced instructors from Analytics Vidya. This course helps you understand the disruptions happening from artificial intelligence, the building blocks of an AI system, and how you can prepare your organization for the future. 
This course will bring out practical case studies and real life examples of various decisions a leader would be expected to take in future because there isn't any programming involved in this course. We have an incredible pre-launch offer going on right now. Head over to trainings.analyticswithya.com and enroll yourself today. In fact, uh, one of the observations I've had is uh, when when people from you know economics background come into data science, uh, typically you know the f- uh, I, I really like the focus on uh, insights and hypothesis, uh, which which comes uh, naturally along with it. Versus, let's say, someone who has been in computer science background and they they tend to think more in terms of the uh, you know what's the code required rather than starting from the hypothesis. Do you do you also so see that kind of uh, uh, difference in, in the way people kind of approach the problem? On average, I do. And mm-hmm. I think that that is why, so both are tremendously valuable mm-hmm. in isolation and mm-hmm. both are particularly valuable when combined. And so my approach to building out the team here at Coursera has been to bring in mathematicians, statisticians, computer scientists. I have a a woman named Rachel Reddick, who's actually a physics PhD from Stanford, um, but hosts of different quantitative backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And then they work very closely together on solving challenges for our learners. And it's awesome to see how, you know, when you take a statistician and a machine learning engineer and you put them together to, for example, create explainable recommendations for learners or Mm -hmm. build... um, you know, an intervention product, which is predicting who's at risk of dropping out of a course, but also serving those individuals um, explainable, actionable recommendations on what to do next to get back on track. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of marrying that prediction with inference and interpretability um, has been has been really powerful for our for our organization. And I think, you know, it's different at different companies, um, mm-hmm. but I hope that, um, you know, at Coursera for many years to come and then wherever I may be after that, um, I'm able to, to bring folks from uh, the inference background and from the prediction background together to solve uh, problems for users. Because I think, the space we're working in does not have obvious solutions, right? If we were just trying to uh, target the right person with ads, um, we would only need a particular skill set. If we were just trying to uh, identify user segments, we would only need a particular skill set. But when we're trying to solve fundamentally unsolved problems around matching people with the right learning content for their goals and backgrounds and convincing them that's the right content for them, or helping them meaningfully progress through really sometimes very hard learning processes and understand what's at the end of that journey. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really wonderful to be able to blend those skill sets. And um, I think you know the current team is is super talented and collaborative. And you know it's a combination of having those um, diverse hard skills as well as the soft skills to communicate and work well together. Interesting. So let's let's uh, uh, you know go uh, and understand the team because as you said, so there were three types of roles which you said your team covers, uh, starting from data engineering to the data science, and then the uh, the third part which you mentioned was about. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, no, no, more building the. They're also data scientists, and they're more building the data products. That's right. right. So. Yeah. 
We have, yeah, we have three functions on the team. So the data engineers um, are, you know, building out the warehouse. And in particular, they're heavily invested in building out our core data lake. Mm -hmm. And the core data lake is the source of truth on key entities. So whether it's events on the platform or Mm -hmm. enrollments, users, courses, specializations, um, you name it, but core entities that we need internally for our analyses and also to power our products. Uh, We put a lot of energy into curating and standardizing that data. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we spun up this group um, maybe about three years ago, Um, we had kicked off a task force, uh, I called it the data management task force, uh, and I asked every data scientist to spend about 25% of their time in a given quarter investing in building out a core data lake. And I realized that while um, that public good was incredibly valuable, before Mm -hmm. this, people were all kind of Uh, had their own definitions. They were writing their own SQL queries to compute these things on the fly. They lived in disparate locations. They weren't consistent across sources. And it was just redundant work. Mm -hmm. And so investing in um, this data management task force and building out this initial core data lake was super valuable. I also discovered that it takes a lot of upkeep. Our product was evolving at a relatively fast clip, and so the data models correspondingly needed to change. And it also wasn't the core competitive advantage of your typical data scientist. And so we hired our first data engineer, um, and that team has since grown to five people. Mm-hmm. Um, as they've grown, they've taken on more than just the warehouse. So they're responsible for internal self-serve analytics. So we're mm-hmm. very much of the perspective that folks around the organization um, should be empowered uh, to drag and drop to get the descriptive data yeah. they need. So mm-hmm. we want to democratize access to the data. And selfishly, this also allows our team to have much more impact without needing to grow in headcount because we are not the blocker on data, mm-hmm. right? Data has really been democratized within the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the last year, uh, year and a half, we've also doubled down on democratizing this data for our university uh, and enterprise, so our university partners and our enterprise customers. And what we're doing here is building a suite of on-platform analytics um, so that you know, a university instructor can understand the demographics of people in their content, but also Mm -hmm. nuanced learning data, like how are learners progressing through content? Where are they struggling? What items do we recommend um, that they improve in order Mm -hmm. to help learners persist through the content? And then a similar suite of dashboards for our enterprise customers who want to understand, for example, the skill profile of their workforce and how Mm -hmm. that compares to industry. And so the approach we've taken with these is these are actually embedded analytics directly on the platform. We're using the same third-party tool that we use internally, Looker, which Mm -hmm. then allows product engineers to focus on product engineering and data engineers, um, a couple of whom are data visualization experts, are able to build end-to-end these in-platform analytics, right? So they are building the core data lake They are using that descriptive data to then power visualizations, and then those visualizations uh, are embedded on our site. And so um, the team, you know, a data engineering team at many companies is is just focused on the warehouse. Our team is focused on the warehouse, is focused on internal self-serve analytics, which you might think of analytics or BI, um, and is also focused on analytical products. Uh, mm-hmm. for our university and enterprise partners. Um, and and there's a, yeah, go ahead. And I was saying there are just five people powering all these three uh, things that you just mentioned. 
Yes. So the way we've done it with few people um, is, you know, first we've sequenced over time, but more importantly, um, we've invested upfront in the core data lake Mm -hmm. and then all of the applications feed from the same core data. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, when we build internal self-service in, in Looker in this case, uh, we're just pulling in the core data lake. We're not recreating any schema. When we um, serve metrics to our university partners, uh, we're pulling from the same source. Uh, yeah. You know, Other features that the team has built that I didn't mention are research data exports. So we have researchers who want CSV access to learner data, um, anonymized, of course, uh, mm-hmm. but in order for them to perform research, for example, when they have A-B tested their content on the platform. And so because the data engineering team has built out this really robust core data lake and then built a number of applications on top of it for both internal and external stakeholders um, with a range of different audiences, um, mm-hmm. we've been able to build uh, to build more quickly. Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, and how does your day get split between these uh, uh, various roles? So how do you spend your day-to-day role? What are the challenges you, you currently focus your time on? Yeah, so there are, as in any organization, there are areas where the work is clear, right? Mm-hmm. We have uh, a roadmap and full alignment and full clarity, and we're putting kind of one foot in front of the other. And I think the team has done a tremendous job defining that roadmap um, in the data engineering land. And I have a strong manager, Ronak Shah, who's running that team. And so uh, I partner with him on defining next steps, but uh, that team really is is kind of off to the races, which is, which is great to see. Um, on the decision Decision science side, or so data scientists who are focused on kind of the modeling and experimentation to inform product and business direction. Um, I also have a strong manager, um, Dan Saber, who is really running that team. He's deeply embedded with the product managers, with the business functions, with the engineers um, in in analyzing uh, the current state of the world and kind of where we want to take Coursera next. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm very I'm very fortunate to have um, a great team um, that data day is is driving a lot of the workflow. Mm-hmm. Um, as we think about our, our data products, so that's our third function, and this is really building the models and algorithms that are directly powering the site, mm-hmm. whether it's in the discovery context, so search ranking or personalized course recommendations, or in the learning context, um, intervening with at-risk learners or building more next-generation technologies for instructors to uh, have machine-assisted grading or machine-assisted feedback or smarter office hours. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really where I have, uh, over the last couple of quarters, been spending more of my time, um, primarily because um, there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of data at Coursera. There are a lot of ways that the data can power the product. And for us to build the best thing for learners to allow them to learn effectively and the best thing for partners to allow them to teach effectively, we really need to be in rapid iteration mode. So Mm -hmm. identifying long run opportunities that could be valuable building lightweight prototypes and getting them in front of customers, whether those customers are enterprise customers, our learners, our university partners, and understanding how they're engaging with them and whether or not um, they can be valuable. So I've been, I've been um, working more closely with that team on prototyping mm-hmm. um, a range of different new 
data-powered applications mm-hmm. um, and shipping lightweight versions uh, to get quick to quick quick customer feedback. And super excited about about the progress we're making. And um, we have a couple bets that we're clearly doubling down on, and then several more that we're exploring actively. So um, that's been that's been a really fun part uh, fun part of my work. Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, if I were to look at various areas which you would be uh, focusing these work on, so starting from, let's say, user acquisition to content discovery to assessments and jobs. So so in each of these areas, what kind of uh, techniques uh, did you find to work really well? And then, you know, if you were to pick, let's say, one example from each of these areas in terms of uh, some of the techniques which which were really helpful in uh, uh, solving uh, problems in these areas, what would they be? Definitely. So on content discovery, I think what has been most valuable for us is establishing the right metadata uh, by which I mean understanding features of our content and understanding features of our users very well, uh, and then building what are actually relatively lightweight logistic regression models um, to recommend people the best content. And when you know when we think about content recommendations, there are a lot of different approaches. Um, there are a lot of black box models which um, can provide reasonable predictions that aren't very explainable. Uh, There's some new literature into explainability where you can identify what's valuable for people and also explain to them why it's valuable. But for us, the biggest boon has actually come from building out uh, what we call our skills graph or knowledge graph. Mm -hmm. And that knowledge graph contains a bunch of metadata about content, in particular, what skills the content is teaching. Mm -hmm. It contains a bunch of metadata about learners, in particular, what career they're in or what career they want to be in and what their current skill levels are. Mm -hmm. And when you combine that metadata, again, in relatively lightweight and simple models, um, it produces very powerful predictions that, when served to the learner, um, really helps them find the right content to meet their goals. Now, building out the graph itself uh, was less simple. And so, at its essence, what the graph is doing is, is it's mapping a library of about 40,000 skills to mm. content. So, what skills are taught in each unit of content? Yeah. Um, to careers. So, what careers are requiring which skills? And to learners, so what skill does each learner have and at what level? Mm-hmm. And these are, um, uh, these are powered by a series of machine learning models built on data from across the platform, uh, including self-reported data. So as learners are moving through content, they're telling us what skills are being taught in that content. And mm-hmm. that's actually a key feature in the content skill prediction model. Um, but as you might imagine, once you understand someone's career goal mm-hmm. and their baseline level, and what skills are taught in each unit of content, um, it's much easier to provide them valuable recommendations um, right. than just a black box kind of collaborative filtering type model. So I would say that um, that smart metadata, and in this case, metadata um, that's built off our skills graph, combined with simple approaches like logistic regression, um, mm-hmm. has been a huge boon for us in, in our recommendations and, and content discovery world. Interesting. And how long did it take to build this uh, knowledge graph, which you just mentioned? It's it's really fascinating to kind of uh, map all of this and, and still kind of uh, keep it uh, simple to understand and map it back to real world. Yeah. So our knowledge graph, we have been investing in for 
about a year and nine months, but it wasn't, and I would suggest this for any data scientist, it was not a year and nine month investment and then an application. It was initial investment in building out uh, one piece of the graph, (laughs) testing that in an application, and then building out additional pieces. So concretely, the first piece of the graph that we built out was simply mapping content to the skills that they're teaching. And so we bootstrapped with an initial skills taxonomy from Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. We got an early estimation of the extent to which uh, each of those skills was taught in each unit of content using very simple NLP methods. So for example, looking at the occurrence of skills or concepts related to the skill and what's called an embedding model. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was sort of our initial prediction of what skills are taught in the content. Mm -hmm. And then we used a lightweight crowdsourcing tool we built to go out to our instructors and ask them um, whether or not the skills that we thought were being taught were actually being taught. And Mm -hmm. that provided an additional input to the model. And once we felt like we had sufficiently high fidelity, we started asking learners as they were moving through content whether these were the skills they were learning. And and we actually left it freeform. So learners could type in skills. Mm -hmm. And then there was a type ahead model. So it um, recommended uh, the most likely skill given the combination of the last two inputs I'd mentioned. So the instructor input and and the NLP input. Um, And then when that had sufficiently high fidelity, which was about three months in, Mm -hmm. we launched our first application, which was completely under the hood. And it was skills-based search. And so you can read more about it in a, I think in a TechCrunch article. Mm-hmm. But the idea of skills-based search is when someone is searching for a skill, we don't just do um, user relevancy or tech similarity ranking. We also give a boost based on the likelihood that that is the best content to teach the skill mm-hmm. according to our knowledge graph. And this produced the single biggest algorithmic win in search that we've had in the history of Coursera. Um, And the reason was uh, twofold. Um, First, it allowed people to find content teaching uh, more granular skills or tools and technologies. Mm -hmm. So instructors will generally not tell you that they're teaching you NumPy, for example. But Mm -hmm. learners say they're learning NumPy because NumPy is the package that they're using to do the assignments. And so now when learners are looking to learn NumPy, they can find the content where um, NumPy plays uh, an important role in that Mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. Um, Other examples of of granular terms like p-value or even regression modeling are not what instructors first and foremost say they're teaching. They may say they're teaching statistics, for example. Yeah. Um, but a lot of learners want to learn particular methods. They see them on job recs. They need them uh, on the job for a current project. And so mm-hmm. allowing people to find content by more granular skill has been, uh, and tool and technology has been really valuable. The second mechanism actually was interesting to me, um, and this was not an original um, component of the graph, but it's allowing mm-hmm. people to find content by soft skill. And so our original skills library only contained hard skills. But Mm -hmm. as you might imagine, because learners were able to enter skills as they went, they started entering skills that we didn't have in the library. And so now if you want to find content that teaches confidence or stress Mm -hmm. management, you get a whole host of content on public speaking um, or learning how to learn um, in which other learners have said they've learned these skills. So basically, we we spent three months. We built out just that single edge between mm-hmm. content and skill. We launched it in an application. Uh, we saw a huge boost, and then we realized there was much more we could do, and we incrementally invested in building out other nodes and edges mm-hmm. um, with 
clear applications in mind. Interesting. Very interesting. Great. Uh, uh, so, so I'm presuming your content discovery models have almost uh, changed at the back back of these knowledge graphs compared to what they were before. Hi, listener. Computer vision is one of the most intriguing field in machine learning world. We are excited to unveil the computer vision using deep learning course at an unbelievable pre-launch offer. This course will walk you through some awesome computer vision applications in a hands-on manner so that you can build state-of-the-art computer vision applications. Enroll yourself on trainings.analyticswithya.com. Yes. So before content discovery was um, very determined by what you had done on the site and what mm -hmm. people like you on the site had ultimately so done. Are collaborative filtering. Basically. Exactly. Collaborative mm -hmm. filtering. And collaborative filtering is great because you don't need to really know anything about the user and you don't need to really know anything about the content. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that, you know, at this point, um, we can do so much more because of our understanding of content. And by the mm -hmm. way, also because of our understanding of users. So, mm -hmm. you know, we invested over the past year and building out a user profile. So people are telling yes. us more about their backgrounds and their goals. Uh, we invested in building out item response theory models, which allow us to estimate your ability in each of a range of skills based on how you've done on the questions you've attempted throughout your courses on the platform. Yeah. And that allows us under the hood to land you in content that's the right level. So, you know, I think there's much more we can do. I would love yeah. for us to move towards out-of-course diagnostics so that we have skill level for cold start users. Yeah. Um, but, but it's definitely been a fun evolution to see. And I think it's really serving learners well. You know, I think a big part of the online learning challenge is just finding the right thing for you right now and knowing that it's the right thing. Yeah, yeah. And then the beauty of this knowledge graph is also, you know, once it is built, you can use the same thing in jobs. So you can uh, almost recommend people that if you undergo some of these courses or uh, upskill yourself with these skills, uh, the chances of taking up a particular job increases uh, simultaneously. Yes, that's absolutely true. And, you know, your jobs point is really interesting. We're, we're doing some pilots right now around mm -hmm. jobs. But mm -hmm. as you might imagine, so Coursera has about 35 million registered learners. Mm -hmm. For many of those learners, we know part, if not all, of their skill profile, depending on how much content they've taken. So mm -hmm. how they um, stack up in machine learning, in statistics, in programming, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and we also know a lot about what job they're in, what level they have, what company they work at, what geo they're located in. And so you can start to map out these super interesting skill profiles where you're asking, okay, what does it take to be a business analyst at Ford versus a data scientist at Bloomberg versus a data analyst at Airbnb, right? And you, and you can start to understand what are the skill profiles across roles, across levels, across industries, across companies. Um, and we're using this right now to, for a very small number of learners, actually pre-qualify them for an interview. So we're working with a large search engine in Russia. And for folks who have a skill profile at or above the skill profile of their internal uh, software engineers, these individuals are 
automatically forwarded to a hiring manager um, to move through the interview process. And this is really exciting to me because I think, um, you know, credentials are changing and Mm -hmm. it's no longer the case that you can just, you know, go to a good college or go to a good graduate school and that's all you need to know. That's sufficient, right? People are learning throughout their lives. People are developing skills throughout their lives and they need to be rewarded for what they know, not for, um, exclusively, you know, what institution they went to um, in undergrad or grad school or what um, what companies they've worked at. And so I think this opportunity to really understand skill profile, understand um, skill profile of individuals and also of jobs, and use that to create a better, smoother um, more equitable labor market is mm-hmm. is a really exciting direction. And we're super early here. We don't have a full product built around it. Um, but the pilots have been, uh, you know, really, really fun to work on. And I'm excited about where the team's taking it. Great, great. Sure. Uh, the other problem which is often quoted with uh, MOOCs is, uh, you know, the drop-off which happens between the number of people registering to the number of people who eventually complete the course and take the certification. So again, did you apply any, uh, I'm presuming there would be some data science you would have started applying because that was one of the initial problems which MOOCs faced. So can you tell us a bit about that, uh, what kind of work happened in that area? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are two directions uh, Mm -hmm. that we can build data products that help learners be successful in content. Mm -hmm. One of them is a set of data products that is intervening directly with the learners to help them be successful. So platform level interventions built by Coursera. Mm -hmm. The other is unlocking data and data tools and technologies um, to allow instructors Uh, to improve their content over time. And so I can talk briefly about um, each of those. Mm -hmm. On intervening directly with learners, um, you know, it's interesting. Our first approach here was to try a very black box kind of prediction model to understand who's at risk. Mm-hmm. What we identified is that we're able to say who's at risk, but unless we know what to do with those people to get them back on track, mm-hmm. uh, it's not very valuable. Mm-hmm. And so we actually, after spending about a month uh, exploring a uh, very you know, advanced at-risk model, we rolled it back and started just um, digging in on the observational data, understanding where learners are dropping off, brainstorming what types of interventions we might do at different drop-off points, mm-hmm. and then sort of bottoms up built this uh, feature that we call in-course help. And basically what the feature is doing is currently we have 21 interventions. Mm-hmm. Those interventions can be triggered for any user in any course in any item state. So for example, I start a video, I finish a video, I pause a video, I open an assignment, I pass an assignment, I fail an assignment, right? Those are all item states. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing on the back end is we're asking, do we think at this particular item state that the learner, given what we know about him or her up to today, is at risk? And if so, how helpful do we think this particular intervention for each of the 21 interventions we have will be Mm -hmm. in helping them persist? Um, And in terms of understanding how helpful, we have two mechanisms um, 
for, for knowing that. Um, originally, we, we did it just based on observational data and working hypotheses. But today, we have two mechanisms for knowing. The first is um, whether or not the user actually engages with it. So if there's a call to action, for example, we want the learner to go and review a particular video before reattempting the assessment because we think that will help him or her get it right this time, mm-hmm. um, then we observe whether or not the learner chooses to engage with that. Other interventions are purely pedagogical. Sorry, purely behavioral. So we're, for example, um, emphasizing social proof, the number of people like you who have been successful in this content at this stage, or Mm -hmm. growth mindset, the fact that we recognize that it's hard and this is part of the learning process. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, we actually don't have a call to action. And so we use the buttons to ask learners whether or not they found the nudge helpful and they tell us yes or no. Mm -hmm. And so based on um, learner self-reports of how helpful it is, based on click-through rates, and based on how those learners do relative to um, learners who are in the holdout group who don't receive these interventions. On the back end, we're improving this um, over time. So that's an example of a learner-facing data product, mm-hmm. predicting who is at risk in a course, um, and then intervening with personalized and, and triggered interventions. Um, and this is um, relatively early. It's only out to 50% of folks at this point. Mm-hmm. And we're continuing to expand the interventions. Uh, but the median intervention increases the number of items that a learner will complete in the course by 2.5%. Mm-hmm. And the median learner is getting about three interventions. So mm-hmm. all in, that's a relatively substantial boost to people's progress um, mm-hmm. through the course. Interesting. So, the other way that we can help with data is actually uh, working directly with our yes, university yes, partners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is more of a platform play. So this is basically saying, okay, we have a supply side, which mm-hmm. is content producers. How can we bring the best of data science? How can we bring the best of sort of consumer internet technologies to help them build the right content. And there are a few different ways we're doing this. One way that um, has been just, I think, very powerful and and fascinating for me is unlocking content A-B testing functionality for Mm -hmm. our university partners. So usually when you think about A-B testing, you think about tech companies, you think about data scientists and engineers. Um, But what we do is we actually let individual instructors Mm A-B test their content. So maybe they're thinking about different structures for the course, different types Mm -hmm. of videos, different types of assessments, having a pretest versus not, the Mm -hmm. length of the course. And um, the way this works is we have um, on the back end a functionality called course versioning. Mm -hmm. So we let an instructor literally just copy over their course, so create two versions of it, and -hmm. then they can change what they want in one version and not the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when learners enroll in the course, um, mm-hmm. they are randomized at the time of enrollment into the different versions of the course. Mm-hmm. And we use the same uh, A-B testing infrastructure that we have in-house mm-hmm. um, to track those learners on a range of metrics and then serve um, analytics to our partners on how different learners are progressing through the funnel in the baseline content version versus the treatment content version. Um, and this is used to inform uh, whether or not uh, the instructor rolls out the course changes or mm-hmm. reverts back uh, to the initial. And so, you know, this has been really fascinating for me because we are 
having people who you know have never programmed in their lives are not technical are maybe you know instructors or instructional designers who are now able to go out and really explore pedagogically what's going to be best for learners uh, iterate and improve their content and ultimately create a better experience um, for the folks on our platform so that's been um, that's been a fun evolution to see and it's just one example of how we are sort of democratizing data and data science tooling and methods for the suppliers the content providers on our platform very interesting very interesting in fact uh, yeah i don't know of uh, any other platform which uh, enables ab to testing of content in this fashion so very interesting uh, great. So, Emily, uh, let's talk about a bit about you know your team. How do you hire them, uh, or, or what do you look in people at time of hiring? So, so can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So, um, that's a great question, and you know, team building is crucial. And yes. team building for me is not about collecting superstar individuals. Mm-hmm. Team building for me is about collecting a superstar team, mm-hmm. and so. You know, I think there are a number of components to that. One component is as I bring people in, um, I'm thinking very deeply about role fit. You know, as you know, a, a huge value that you're providing to the community is clarity on what it means to be a data scientist or in analytics. What are the mm-hmm. different functions? Uh, you know, what are the skill sets you need? And I think because it is such a big and broad field. Um, A lot of the interview process is understanding someone's core strengths. Where do they really excel? Mm -hmm. Understanding how they want to grow and evolve in their career. Mm -hmm. And then figuring out whether those core strengths coupled with um, the desired sort of career path or evolution meshes on well with uh, the needs of our organization today based Mm on what we're doing as a company and who we already have on the team. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I mean, I'm growing, um, you know, the data science team basically 50% over the coming six months. So mm-hmm. I have uh, a relatively large number of roles, which allows me to be pretty opportunistic in my hiring um, and really focus on um, understanding, you know, if, if someone is, um, you know, going to be uh, incredibly strong, for example, in NLP. Well, mm-hmm. NLP is a skill set where we don't have um, huge coverage today on the team mm-hmm. and where we have real business needs. So part of what we're focused on um, is uh, what we're calling machine-assisted uh, grading or machine-assisted feedback, which is helping instructors and TAs grade and give feedback on assignments more efficiently. Well, that's first and foremost an NLP problem. So, so there are certain technical skill sets um, that, that I think would round out our team really well and that would align very well um, with, with the needs of the organization. But what I look for first and foremost is what is your core strength and are you able to go deep in that area? And so you know, the number one feedback that I have for folks who are going into the market mm-hmm. is to position themselves as sort of T-shaped candidates. And by T, I mean you have a broad base yeah. Uh, you know, you, you can, you know, work with relational databases, you're comfortable in programming, you know, some statistics, you know, some machine learning, mm-hmm. but then you can also go deep in an area. And it's interesting. I think a lot of people have that T shape and they go deep in an area, but it is super important that they communicate that depth. Mm-hmm. And that it's clear to the hiring manager what their area of expertise is so that, um, 
you know, so that they can really be shown in their best light in the interview. And so that when they come on the job, um, they're brought into a role that leverages those strengths. Mm -hmm. Um, so I like to understand people's core strengths and know that they have a core strength that's really valuable to the organization. Mm -hmm. Then I like to understand, um, what they love to do, where they're looking to go in their career. So there are people that, for example, really want to be spending their time, um, you know, tuning and refining algorithms or building fundamentally new algorithms. Mm-hmm. Those people should not be at a 300-person startup <laughs> on a 15-person data science team, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There are other people who are very interested in thinking holistically about the product and the business, mm-hmm. in bootstrapping and building products zero to one, in partnering closely with product and engineering and business teams to understand where to take the business. And so, you know, those people are probably a better fit. So understanding how people want to evolve their career and, and ensuring there's a fit there is the second thing. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing I look for is soft skills. And soft skills are actually very different in different people. It doesn't necessarily mean being a super strong communicator and super outgoing. It doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, having great presentation skills. I mean, I think, I think soft skills um, are often misconstrued as uh, culture fit or fitting in. For me, soft skills are really two things. The first is growth mindset. So a desire to learn and continue learning. And then second, uh, collaborative style. And different people collaborate in different ways. Uh, we've got lots of introverts on the team. Um, but a desire to learn and grow from the people around you, a desire to teach the people around you, as you might imagine, Kunal, we're very much a growth mindset company. We believe in lifelong learning. Um, yeah. And I think you can just get a sense of that, honestly, in, in the interview. You can mm-hmm. get a sense from... Um, you know, whether or not people, our whole interview process is case studies. So it's all real challenges that we're tackling at Coursera. There are no sort of, you know, hyper theoretical interview questions, but how do they engage with, with me and with the team around our case Mm -hmm. studies and and how do they collaborate in, in sort of solving the challenges we're facing uh, and tackling for learners. So Great to see T-shaped individuals and, and, you know, would encourage folks to make sure that they emphasize their area of depth and, and that hiring managers know what it is. Um, great to see people whose career path uh, and core interests are aligned with what we need right now in an organization given our size and stage. And then super crucial to see people who are growth oriented in general and have kind of that collaborative bent um, that's going to let us sort of unleash the power of the team with them. Um, because again, I'm not looking for superstar individuals. I'm, I'm looking to craft a superstar team. Sure. Sure. Uh, great. Great. Thanks. Thanks for great. those uh, advice. Uh, yeah. So Emily, one of the uh, areas I wanted to talk specifically around was number of women in data science. And then you have been one of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, women who was uh, who have been featured in two rows in a row on analytics, uh, two years in a row in analytics with this top women data scientist. So, so how do you think we can increase, you know, number of females pursuing this field or are, are there any challenges which you see which, which needs to be solved for before, before something uh, like that happens? Well, so first of all, thank you for including me. I was super honored uh, to be included. It's, it's an incredible list. Um, there certainly are exceptional women in the field. Yeah. Um, there also, to your point, are, in my mind, not enough of them. Right. 
And, you know, I think there are uh, a number of reasons for that. It's, it's very, very hard to parse out all of the different mechanisms. Sure. Um, but I think, you know, there are also some things that we can do um, consciously uh, that will help. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it really starts at the very, very top of the funnel, which is when hiring managers are out looking for talent and sourcing people, mm-hmm. um, making sure that you're sourcing uh, people from a range of different backgrounds. And by the way, gender is one component of diversity, but it's only mm-hmm. one. And I think these um, these recommendations are valid across, uh, across sure. different yeah. ethnic groups gender and so on. And so, you know, when I'm sourcing, there are a few things. So there are three, there are three ways that people come into me. One is organically. So just through my job postings Mm -hmm. and there I'm focused on making sure my job postings are inclusive Mm -hmm. and, you know, that they certainly don't have gendered pronouns, but that they also feel open and accessible to a range of different people. And they're actually, um, companies that have created tools. Uh, so one is called Textio, which for free, you can just import your job description mm-hmm. um, and it will give you any feedback on, on whether or not it feels inclusive and accessible. Um, the second source uh, of, of, um, of talent is referrals. And, you know, you and I talked a little bit about referrals at the beginning. We talked about referrals with regards to their level of productivity on the job and why they're valuable to firms. Uh, One of the things we didn't talk about is that referrals tend to look a lot like the people who refer them. So uh, if you have a uh, very diverse team up front, uh, you're setting yourself up for success and having a diverse team down the line um, because, um, you know, people's friends tend to look like them. They will refer their friends. They will refer people from their community who look like them. And you'll continue to have a diverse team over time. And I think what this speaks to is the importance of, in particular, small teams mm-hmm. uh, making sure to invest in diversity efforts early yeah. because uh, those investments are going to pay off um, as the team scales. And then the third, you know, the third source of talent uh, is sourced candidates. So people that we're actually going out and and finding in our network. And there are a number of ways to source diverse candidates. Um, One way that has worked really well for us is actually hosting events jointly with Women Who Code. So Mm -hmm. Women Who Code is a fantastic organization. Mm -hmm. Um, Last year, we had an event... uh, with uh, 250 female data scientists from around the Bay Area and a handful of male data scientists as well who came and and the event was a series of lightning talks. So I had five female data scientists on the team each Mm -hmm. give a lightning talk about their work. Um, And I think as we're out, you know, um, talking about our work or, you know, and and reaching out to candidates, making sure those candidates are diverse is really important. But figuring out diversity top of funnel is only kind of the first step. And if you have biased screening or interview processes, if you're not growing and retaining diverse talent over time, uh, you're not going to be successful. And so I think um, for me, screening and interviewing is really about having a structured process. Mm -hmm. So uh, making sure that all candidates are getting asked the same questions making sure that there's an upfront rubric for all questions that are being asked, that interviewers are applying that rubric consistently, and making sure that interviewers aren't seeing the feedback of other interviewers until they've submitted their own feedback. So really making sure there's not any groupthink um, happening. Sure. Um, 
And of course, when you're interviewing, you know, it's, it's a two-sided thing. People think that that they're selling themselves, but really like, you know, they're selling themselves and I'm selling myself. We're all yeah. trying to, you know, make sure that, that the fit is there. And, and yeah. so, you know, I think in my uh, on-site interviews, for example, um, I work hard to connect the dots between the technical work we're doing mm-hmm. and the social impact we're having. And, um, you know, I think a lot of technical roles provide an incredible opportunity to have an impact um, in education, in health, and other societal challenges. And I think we're able to attract uh, a diverse uh, team to Coursera in part because of kind of that social mission um, mm-hmm. and the fact that that social mission in and of itself is appealing um, to a diverse group of people. So really making sure that comes through um, throughout the process. And then finally, you know, on the job, because recruiting is only the first step, um, on the job, making sure everyone is, um, you know, having access to the same high visibility projects, is getting the same valuable feedback, um, is being compensated and promoted in an unbiased fashion, um, is being paid fair. I mean, all of those things I think are are kind of table stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, between being thoughtful in, in who you're sourcing and how you're growing your early team and therefore the referrals you get and being thoughtful about how you're interviewing folks and then in being thoughtful about how for every individual, how you're developing them on the job uh, mm-hmm. and ensuring that, you know, their career is set up for success, both in their current role and down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that we can make a lot of progress in building out and retaining diverse teams. Sure, sure. Thanks, thanks for uh, that detailed, uh, you know, perspective. And then it uh, really speaks uh, quite a few things which which should be done in that manner in the industry. Uh, my final, you know, question to you uh, is that you are, uh, you know, working on a. a cutting edge of technology in an education domain. And, uh, you know, I've heard very often people saying that uh, the penetration of data science is still not uh, as high in education as compared to some of the other uh, domains. So so how do you see this uh, uh, domain evolving, especially uh, data science becoming more popular? How, how do you see education changing with, uh, with data science? So ultimately, what we need to do as a society is provide increased access to high quality educational opportunities. And we need to do that now more than ever because of the pace of technological change and in order for people to remain relevant in the labor market. And I think individuals see this and they're investing in their own education. Companies see this and they're investing in their employees' education. Governments see this and they're investing in their citizens' education. Um, But to educate more and more people more and more frequently throughout their lives um, Mm -hmm. is going to be super expensive with the current cost of brick-and-mortar education. And, you know, the cost of brick and mortar education is going up dramatically in large part because the people costs are going up about 7% year over year for in the higher education space. Mm-hmm. And so as I think about what we're trying to do in ed tech, what we're trying to do in ed tech is provide universal access to outstanding educational opportunities, which mm-hmm. means making them available no matter where you're geolocated making them available no matter what hours of the day you have, right? Even while retaining your full-time job. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, making them available at a cost that is accessible to individuals. And that first piece around um, 
around access, sort of no matter where you are, the second piece around any time of day, you can do a lot of that with non-data powered technology. Mm-hmm. But that third piece around providing high quality education at low cost mm-hmm. fundamentally requires data driven technology. And, and, you know, there are a number of examples of this, but I think the most salient for me is, you know, a lot of effective learning and effective teaching is a hands on human component. There's someone who's coaching you. There's someone who's providing you valuable feedback. There's someone who's grading your work. There's someone who's there for you when you get stuck. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the core things that data science can do to bend the learning curve of society is to figure out high quality ways to scale the best of teaching um, so that we can provide that learning experience to more and more people at lower and lower cost. And, you know, that is ultimately, you know, the primary goal. And there are a lot of things the team does, but that is the primary goal of what my team is trying to do. Mm-hmm. I think um, that will increasingly, uh, or I hope that will increasingly dominate, um, you know, what data science looks like in ed tech companies and that, and that data science will play a bigger and bigger role. Because fundamentally, the number of people we need to educate with the frequency with which we need to educate them at a reasonable cost, yeah. uh, we need to be using uh, the scale that's only possible in the online context and the data exhaust that's created by that scale and power it back in intelligent ways to improve the learning experiences for more people uh, at lower teaching costs. Sure, sure. Yeah, great, great answer. And uh, yeah, uh, as I said, really, uh, you know, uh, exciting to see that kind of vision coming out uh, and then be part of that journey in whatever way uh, we can. So, uh Thanks, thanks a lot, Emily, for your time. Uh, it has been a phenomenal, uh, you know, podcast. I think it will come out really beautifully, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to this going out to the community. Thank you so much for having me, Kunal, and thank you again for all you do to educate the community. I think it's uh, incredibly important work. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Emily. 